maybe you should move. If you live in the United States and you want your vote to count, maybe you should move. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about voting of all kinds. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Creative isn't who you are. It's what you do. Along the way, creativity has gotten a mystical rap, as if it's some sort of gift. It's not. It's a choice. It's a skill. If you have a job where you get to decide what you do, you are a creative, a working creative, and you can get better at it. I'm thrilled to say that the Creatives Workshop is back, the most active of all the Akimbo workshops. It's about people who want to level up and make a difference with their creative work. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Yes, it's true. For Californians, your vote in the Senate is 153rd as important as it is for someone from Wyoming, meaning the people in Wyoming have more than 50 times as much impact on how the Senate decides things in the United States. And when it comes to presidential elections, they have more than four times as much impact as someone who lives in California. That's because the United States is not a republic with a democracy. It's a little bit more twisted than that. And it's easy to look at voting as something that we do here every two or four years. But in fact, people vote all the time. We don't necessarily vote with ballots, but there's voting going on. And it's worth a discussion about how we decide who gets to vote and how much a vote counts. So consider, for example, a proxy fight at a public company. If you own a share in a public company, you get to vote on who's on the board of directors. The board of directors gets to vote on how the company is run if they're doing their job. The thing is, the more shares you own, the more votes you get. And when it comes to public companies, there's not a lot of argument that that's the way it should be. Or if you work for a private company where the boss owns the whole thing, there's not a lot of objection most of the time when the boss makes decisions. After all, it's her company. We allocate votes based on ownership. There's a long history of people arguing that only folks who own property should be able to vote. The science fiction author Robert Heinlein, in my recollection, wrote that only veterans should be able to vote because they have more at stake. They showed up when their life was on the line to defend the country they were in. What about when six or eight or 10 people are going out for dinner? Well, maybe the person who's got a very special diet for medical reasons gets a bigger vote than everyone else. Not because they have more money, not because they're a veteran, but because they have more at stake going forward. Because, yeah, it's true, leaving aside medical issues, the vegan can't find anything to eat at the steakhouse, but the steak eater could probably find something to eat at the health food restaurant. We have this calculation going on all the time. And the reason it's interesting to talk about right now is because of the blockchain, because of Bitcoin, because of cyber currency. Because yes, in fact, there's voting going on constantly, all the time. So here's a quick primer 
on how the whole thing works. The blockchain is actually a pretty useful and really fascinating concept. What it says is that if there was a database that was inspectable, unforgeable, that kept a history, that no one controlled, that no one owned, we could probably do useful things with that database. Here's a super simple example. If you have ever bought or sold a home, you paid money for title insurance. Now, title insurance is a bit of a scam because they know the answer for far less money than they're charging. But leaving that aside, what happens when the title for things like property that can only be owned by one person at a time is put into the blockchain? Now we have this record, this record of who owns it and how they got it. That's really important, particularly in places where there isn't a long history of civilized exchange of things like property, where centralized records are unreliable. You don't want two people showing up and saying, this is my land. The blockchain solves that problem. But one of the challenges of running a blockchain is what blocks do you put in it? What is authorized and what isn't? How do you go about updating it if it's not centralized? Well, some people think that Bitcoin was invented to enable the blockchain. I happen to think the blockchain is a good excuse to implement Bitcoin. Bitcoin is digital gold. It's cumbersome. It's metaphorically heavy, metaphorically difficult to move around compared to other forms of digital interaction. And the reason is this, that in order to get a new Bitcoin, a freshly minted one, you have to prove to the community that you've earned it. And the way you earn it is by performing a large number of extraordinarily difficult computations. These would have been impossible 20 years ago, but now with a good laptop hooked up to the internet and a lot of electricity, you can go ahead and do this. And over time, if you set up a mining operation, a bunch of these computers, hopefully next to cheap renewable electricity, you will be rewarded with Bitcoin. Now, this is done to ensure that the blockchain that Bitcoin supports is accurate and up to date because those computations that you are doing are all about giving you the right to authorize the next block that gets added to the chain. And so you've got tens or hundreds of thousands of computers all competing all the time to look at all of the inputs and decide in agreement what is going to get added to the blockchain. So instead of one computer doing something, you have essentially an infinite number of computers doing it. Super inefficient, but the argument is Moore's law keeps getting better, and this system should be, if appropriately constructed, impervious to fraud and to hacking. This is called proof of work. That when you prove that your computer has done the work to check against all of the bad things that could happen to the blockchain, you may be rewarded with a big prize. The problem with proof of work is this. As Bitcoin has gotten more and more expensive, more people want to earn it. They want to mine a Bitcoin. When a Bitcoin was 50 bucks, eh, it's not worth my trouble. But when a Bitcoin is worth a thousand times as much, it's worth a lot of trouble. But there aren't an infinite number of Bitcoin to be given out. So they have to raise the stakes for what you need to do to get one. And that raising of the stakes is directly related to how much electricity you're going to need to do that complicated problem. And so you've already seen this. You may have read my post about NFTs. The blockchain 
and Bitcoin in particular, is sucking huge amounts of electricity, more than, for example, the entire nation of Argentina. Think about that. The entire nation of Argentina's electrical output dedicated to creating, basically, numbers on a screen. So are there alternatives? Well, one of the alternatives that hopefully will get figured out soon is called proof of stake. And the metaphors here, I think, are really useful for people who don't care at all about blockchain, but do care about representation, about democracy, about how we decide. Proof of stake is easy to describe. We should let the people who have a lot at stake chime in for the things that we are about to decide. In the case of the blockchain, it's simple. The more coins you own and the older they are, the more likely it is that you have a vested incentive for the system you are a part of to be seen as reputable because it will make the value of your coins go up. You are a guardian. You will be inherently conservative in how your computer makes decisions. That when there is a lot at stake for you, there's not a lot of incentive to be a bad actor, to start inserting stuff into the blockchain that doesn't belong there, to start pranking the whole system so that it doesn't work. Now, this leads to centralization because if you're giving new coins to people who have more coins, well, there's the genie in X all over again, the rich get richer. And so they add things to it to shake it up so that your old coins can only be used once for a vote and then they go back in the queue until they get old again so that there are random elements to it so that new voices can be heard. I think these are addressable issues. The beauty of proof of stake is it uses almost no electricity and instead gets back to something that people are inherently okay with, which is wisdom. The wisdom that comes from being committed to something, from being there for a while, for sticking it out. Yes, still open to new approaches, but no, not fly by night, not fully anonymous, I don't care who you are, let's just see what happens. And then we get back to this idea of how we decide. When five people are in a room at a meeting at a company and a real decision has to get made, is it always made by the boss? Likely not. It's often made because the group looks to somebody who is willing to accept responsibility. And responsibility and authority are different. And this is one of the problems we're seeing in the media-fueled insanity that's going on in many democratic nations around the world, which is a whole bunch of people, trolls, sock puppets, people who might be anonymous or just like being famous, are showing up demanding authority without taking responsibility. They're showing up eager to be critical without doing the work. And most of all, they haven't done the reading. They don't understand the science. They haven't looked at the background. They're not demonstrating wisdom. They're simply being trolls. And the same thing is true in that meeting at work. And the same thing is true when it's time for the family to decide whether they're going to buy a house or not. And yes, where to go for dinner tonight. In all of those cases, we have learned the hard way that wisdom has some value and that wisdom, proof of stake, the idea that proof of stake means I have a lot riding on this, it's a useful way to make important decisions about what we should do next. 
Because wisdom implies that you've done the reading. Wisdom implies that you're in it for the long term. And most of all, wisdom means that you're taking responsibility. Authority is an artifact of industrial capitalism. We had to invent the org chart in order to have the org. But there's something else going on here. And that other aspect of it is that while authority is hard to get, and while authority can be misused, responsibility, responsibility is usually up for grabs. If you're willing to say, put it on my watch, I'll put my name on it, I'll get this thing done, and you mean it, the rest of the community can look at this and say, okay, we're counting on you because you've done it before. I think we have the opportunity to increase our proof of stake to show up and say, yeah, on our watch, not a secret ballot, really, truly, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to hold the sign, I'm going to raise my hand, I'm going to put my name on it. Because that is how we make better decisions going forward. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with three questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is the time to level up? When is the time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or anything else, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. Here we go. Hi, Seth. Daniel from GMT time minus seven. My question is regarding what to do immediately after a session of deep focus. Uh, I'm very thankful for all the for all the advice and encouragement you've provided to me over the years listening to Akimbo. I found that when I get most deeply involved in my creative work, I make a lot of progress in a short time, but also feel a, a strong emptiness immediately after. And it typically goes away and I'll dream about my work that night. But I wonder, are there ways to prepare for this better, to deal with this post-focus letdown? Thanks, Seth, for all you do. Thanks for this, Daniel. One thing that I recently read is that a chess tournament among grandmasters, someone in a tournament like that, can burn 6,000 calories in a day. That's extraordinary. That's almost like swimming. And the reason is simple because your brain and the emotions that it releases through your body, it takes energy. So 
if you're in flow, if you're leaning hard into a creative cycle, it's no surprise at all that you're feeling depleted from the calories and also from the emotional waves that go through us. And the reason that there are waves is when we are doing creativity, we are doing two things at once. This might work and this might not work. That the very nature of any idea that is unproven and untested, in essence, any creative idea, is that we have to dance between this might work and this might not work. And that can be exhausting. And I guess the only advice I have for you other than telling you that's normal is to, when it occurs, not to curse it, but to celebrate it because it means you've been working out. Hello, Seth. My name is Pablo Sebastián Velasco. I'm from Argentina. My name is a Spanish name. And it sounds hard for American people to remember it. So, since I am building my personal brand, I'm asking myself, should I use this name, a contraction of it, or should I use a fantasy name? What's your opinion? By the way, I'm a, an artist, a musician. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for this, Pablo. When I got started a long time ago and I had to make a bunch of phone calls to the folks that I was hoping to work with in the days just at the beginning of voicemail, lots of times I'd be talking to receptionists. I had plans to change my working name to Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson, at least in this country, is easy to remember. There's always a story about it. I had a CFO for hire years ago whose name was Stephen King. Again, He got to say in every conversation, no, I'm not that Stephen King. But yes, in fact, it was pretty easy to remember. Now, the people in my country are fairly ethnocentric in the sense that the regular kind, the names from the dominant class, are the ones that people have relied on for years and years. If you spell your name differently, if you have a name that's outside of the top 100, people feel like they have the right to push back as if you're doing something wrong. So everyone is entitled to their own name. Everyone is entitled to the way they speak. However, and it is a useful however, when we develop a brand, we are doing it for the people we are serving. When we develop a brand, its purpose is to be a shortcut, a reminder, a way of establishing what someone's going to get from us next time. So when they had to change the name of that candy called AIDS, well, they could have said, we worked really hard for a really long time to have a candy named AIDS, but the world disagreed. And in the case of human beings, we have an interesting choice to make. In the arts, there's a long history of people from around the world making a difference, right? Whether it's Yo-Yo Ma or Frida Kahlo, or Picasso, the fact is that you don't have to be named Thomas Jefferson to have a memorable moniker that can serve as a brand. So I have no trouble spelling your name or remembering your name. I'm not speaking for every person that doesn't live near you, but my hunch is that you'll be fine. On the other hand, 
If your goal is to build the social network, I'm not sure yourname.com is the best, most memorable way to build a brand that's bigger than yourself. Hey, Seth. Uh, this is Linda from Queens. Um, I love your show. Love your books. Um, I listen every week. Big fan. So uh, the podcast, The Miser, ooh, that one hit me really hard. Um, so I have a question. Um, I am a person who finds hobbies and those hobbies usually turn into businesses. But what happens after it becomes a business, I start becoming disinterested after a certain amount of time. And usually it has to do (laughs) with um, people and all the time I have to spend on social media trying to get more people so the business becomes less fun because it becomes more work, obviously. There are some things that I've done really, really well. But when I go to master any of those things, I run into a dead end or I'm just really disinterested. Am I just a fickle, (laughs) immature, lazy entrepreneur type or is this normal? Thank you so much. Thank you for this, Linda. This is super normal, super standard. It is part of our modern era because 100 years ago, no one thought they could turn their hobby into a business. It just wasn't done. Business was work. And if you didn't have to dig ditches for a living, that was a win. If you didn't have to work in a coal-powered plant lit by candles that was going to give you lung disease, that was great, a super big win. It's only fairly recently, I don't know, Martha Stewart or a decade before that, where the idea came along that you could make a living from your hobby. I think in many ways, it's a mistake. Because as soon as you start doing your hobby for other people, you can't also be doing it for you. And your job, as I just mentioned to Pablo, is to serve other people. And it may be that it's exhausting for you because it's a fundamental shift. Hobbies are things we do on our own time because they're fun, because we feel clever, because we get agency over how we do it all the time. But the minute we exchange attention or money with someone else, we're making a promise. And we have to keep it whether we want to keep it or not. So yeah, we need to make a living. We need to pay the rent. It might make sense for you and for lots of other people to find a job, a project, a business, where you are solving a problem for other people who are eager to pay you to solve their problem and will pay you well and treat you with respect. And if the work you're doing isn't work you would be doing as a hobby, fine. Because what it has done by you picking a really juicy problem to solve is freed up the time and given you the resources to go back to working on your hobbies. Because most of the time, when we try to bring our hobby to the marketplace, the marketplace doesn't appreciate it as much as we'd like them to. So now we end up with the worst of both worlds. We have a business that doesn't pay well, and we have a hobby that doesn't make us happy anymore. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself 
as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.